Cuban Serenade with Freddy Monasterio and Karen Dowinski. In this podcast series, we're exploring the history of Cuban music in Canada. This is the first of two parts where we'll zoom in in one of the most important hubs for Latin music and culture in Canada, Toronto's Lula Lounge. For this two-part episode, we interview Jose Ortega and Tracy Jenkins, the co-artistic directors and, together with Jose Nibs, founders of Lula. We also spoke to two musicians who have been regulars on Lula's stage since it opened, Cuban trumpet player and composer Alexis Baró and the Peruvian-Canadian producer and percussionist Luisito Orbegoso. Located in Toronto's Little Portugal, Lula Lounge has become, over its 20-year history, a well-known and respected venue in this multicultural city. How did it achieve this popularity? Where did the inspiration come from? We're going to focus on some of the people and places that played a significant role in the opening of Lula in 2002. We'll hear again about the Cerveceria, the college street bar that hosted the famous Cuban nights in the 1990s. We'll also learn about Open City, the DYI space that hosted an innovative series of art shows inspiring a group of cultural entrepreneurs to buy and open a Latin venue in downtown Toronto. One of those entrepreneurs, Jose Ortega, shared some of Lula's origin story with us. So yeah, I can't remember the, the first time I went to Cerveceria. Was, well, we started Open City in 2000. So it must have been, I know the Cerveceria was going on for a while, but I think I first started going there around 99, 2000. At that stage of the game, it was after... I think it was after Ricky and Alberto Alberto and those guys were starting to take over the uh, Sonache band. And then the other guys had splintered off and I, they became something else, another band, the, the original Sonache guys. So Neves and I would go there and uh, funny enough, we were freshly out of relationships, uh, newly single, and we wanted to learn how to dance and get our groove and get our moves going. And it was out of kind of being exposed to a salsa scene, an existing salsa scene in Toronto, sort of, because uh, I'd also seen um, Concache, which was Vibrason before that. So we wanted to learn how to dance. So then we got, he and another friend, Harvey, we got Miko, a Venezuelan guy, to teach us how to dance at, at Jose's loft, at my, and actually his building and my loft. And those nights was really just a social where we started to put on some music and and learn how to dance so that we could go to Cerveceria or Berlin. But Berlin was way, kind of out of our league because that was more salseros. And then little by little, we started to, uh, it started to grow. It was a Monday night thing. And, I, and Tracy became a part of that. And a bunch of other people that became part of Lula. So then we would go to Cerveceria, do our Monday night thing. So there was kind of a cross-pollination happening there. So then it quickly grew into Open City, like all of that movement between dancers and musicians and an artist and all that stuff it became a, a concept for an art show and then at that art show the big one the first open city was the idea was that we would all we all lived in this building to federal street and that we would all move our furniture aside and put up art and 
invite the city to check out the art, but we'd also have food and provide some some drinks. I really wanted to have a live band. I had seen Vibrason during that time, so so I, I'd met them just randomly. And I really wanted Vibrason, so they were the first band uh, that we, that I became in contact with uh, on a more formal basis, like as far as like I wanted to work with these guys. And Neves, who's the landlord, actually agreed to this beforehand, which was already a small miracle that he would allow us to have a band and invite all these people uh, and do all of this project in, under his roof uh, with, with all the liabilities and all that stuff. I, and he said, talk to Lisito, talk to Lisito Regoso, which I think he's an important anchor and person that kind of runs through the whole scene, you know, through the, the previous days and into, into what became Lula. So I talked to Lisito about organizing. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. That, that was the second, that was, that's what became Open City. But, but the first one, I just talked to uh, Chomsky and Wilson Acevedo and those guys, and they performed that night. And it was a crazy December night. It was snowing and it was literally hundreds of people came to Open City and somehow we managed to get a deal with a beer company and we were giving away free beer and we had food and we had all of these strangers going up and down the building and we had no idea uh, what we had done. Like it was like this genie had cracked open from the bottle and it was nuts because it was, uh, in those days it was before social media. So really it was an ad in the Village Voice, not the Village Voice, and now some postcards and maybe some email addresses and just people telling people about it. So it filled up with, I, I think, I want to say from the ticket, there were like 700 people were going in and out of the building and up and down the stairs and the band was playing and the walls were sweating and the whole thing was, was kind of amazing. And that, then that show that was Open City, we also had dancers and performers and poets and all this other stuff. It grew into a, a nonprofit organization to keep doing this, we all kind of said, okay, let's do this again. The cool thing is, is that people that we met at Cerveceria, uh, Noelia, who was a waitress there, I think, came over and volunteered. Mari Gomez, who was a super regular there, also became a volunteer at Open City. So we ran, since it was a nonprofit, it was all volunteers and people running the bar. And we'd, we'd go rent the sound system at Long McQuaid and set things up. So we bought everything and put the lights up and kind of made an impromptu stage in my apartment. And then we uh, put sound bafflings so that the cops wouldn't come. So we did all of this stuff and Neves put an air conditioner because it would get super hot. So little by little, these Monday night salsa lessons kept growing and then what started out as five six people became 20 people every monday night and it became a huge potluck and like literally all kinds of like friends would bring friends and the whole thing just kind of mushroomed into this it was kind of a movement and so then we did that for two years and then we had and then the the descargas came about the alta descarga with that's when i talked to visito and and we just said we'll organize the situation we'll organize the the thing the space and we'll invite the people and all that stuff. You just organize the musicians. And the reason, interestingly enough, one of the reasons that the, the whole idea of the descarga was that it would be a, a jam session is that I wanted to create a space where the musicians could do their own thing and, and set free and kind of elevate the form. It's I, I, I think that through jamming and through musicianship and through this kind of camaraderie of musicians trying to show off with each other that you get a better, a better scene, a more active scene, because as great as Cerveceria was, 
And as much fun as it was, one of the things, and I remember distinctly dancing with Mari, uh, Mari Gomez at Cerveceria, and, and she knew the order of the songs that were going to be played. The set list was the same every week because it was the same guys every week. It was the same order and it was the same thing. So it was great within what it was, but there was this no surprises about it other than that it was happening and it was cool in the moment. So I, I really wanted to throw in a little bit of an element of we don't know what's going to happen and, and leave it more in the musician's hands as to what to do. And we geared it toward jazz. I mean, Latin jazz, but more toward a jazz tilt with a little bit of a salsa or a strong salsa influence because we all love salsa. But really the whole idea with the descarga was jazz. So I think in the early ones, he brought in um, Alexi Baró. He brought in, I think, Hilario, David not Mireyes, David, another great Cuban musician who was playing with Mercedita Valdez and he, he ended up staying in Toronto. Luis Guerra? So, I mean, Alexi Baró was like 20 years old or 19 years old. He had just arrived. David Mireyes was a baby. Hilario was bringing these guys in. Jane Bennett wasn't really a part of it, but I think she, she knew about it. Um, so then, so that was the kind of scene that we were trying to foment. And then, so then... Uh, Luisito organized the house band and then guys would come in and sit in and you know all of this stuff w was happening so it was kind of like a parallel universe to the cerveceria reality was this other thing that was kind of inspired by it but then bubbling bubbling along at uh, on Dundas Street which is a, a slightly different vibe. The success of Open City led the two Jose's Ortega and Neves supported by Tracy Jenkins and a community of artists and fans of Latin culture to take a risk and move the concept to the next level. At one time we had City TV show up there at the jam session, so it became a little bit of a underground thing where, you know, still to this day I meet people that I've never met before. They're like, oh yeah, I was there at that party or this party or I was at that at that thing. It, it was really cool for two years, but but it was we were all doing it as volunteers and all kind of it, it was hard. It was also hard and, and taxing on my apartment, myself, and, and I don't know how we thought having a club would be easier, but we end this. So we would have the Alta Descargas and, and then we had the dance lessons going on. And then we also had belly dance lessons and spoken word and dance performances happening. And again, we would do the big show once or twice a year where myself, Jose Neves, Vlad, yeah, Vlad, this other guy that lived there, we would all just move aside our stuff, put up the things and let the city in. And it was it was cool because it was multi-generational, multi-everything, multidisciplinary. And the whole idea was to be very uh, non-elitist, you know, very open, uh, why, why the name of the city, very open about opening up culture to that part of town, which in those days, uh, if you remember Dundas West, Dufferin and Dundas in the 2000, it was, uh, it was like a wasteland. Yeah, there, was, there was not a whole lot there.
As Jose Ortega and Tracy Jenkins told us, the Cuban trumpet player Alexis Barreau played an important part in the living history of the Cuban and Latin music scene in the Lula era, even though Alexis is actually better known in the jazz and R&B worlds. We had a great conversation with him about his early career in Havana. Alexis Barreau had a great start in music education in Havana. He graduated from the famed Amadeo Roldan Conservatory, and even while he was still a student, he performed and toured with Omar Portuondo, including a stint in Canada in 1998. When he graduated, he played for two years as part of his social service obligation for his education with the National Radio and Television Orchestra. This was another school for me, he says now, as it was a big band format filled with veteran musicians. They recorded two shows daily for live radio. He also played weekends in a timba band and even began his own jazz quartet, which had a regular gig at Havana's Jazz Cafe. In 2000, again on tour, he came to Toronto and stayed. His training and performance experience helped him to incorporate himself into a wide range of Canadian bands as he settled into Toronto. I came on tour in 1998, right off the of school. Like literally, as, as soon as I finished school, I was here maybe a month later. I was touring with uh, Mireya Escalante. Was in the, oh, Latin Street. What was the name of the band? Latin Street. Toronto got my attention, basically. I was here for maybe three, four months. It literally got my attention. I sort of got the vibe of the city. I got to learn a little bit of the city at that time anyways, because I was moving from gig to gig and, and you know, I sort of learned a lot of places. And I met a good amount of musicians. That combined with the variety of style, you know, the whole ethnicity, the whole, you know, it, it's like literally the entire world in one city. That got my attention. So that's why I came back, right? Because I found that it was very rich in culture. And I already, you know, at that time I already met some people. So I think it was a, the, the, it was the appropriate choice anyways at that time. And I'm glad I did it anyways. When I first came to Toronto, I met so many, um, so many musicians, and it wasn't just about the musicians. It was about the uh, the wide cultural experience. It was so much to see and to learn. It was it was a lot of culture, and there was a lot of different things that I've never experienced before in terms of music, which was my main interest. So it was it, it is still you know such a, a great place for for a variety. I got into you know, headfirst intro into the music scene here and uh, started experiencing a lot of a lot of things that were new to me and that, you know, were interested. I started playing, well, I always liked R&B. I was into R&B and, you know, soul and uh, funk stuff. That was that was one of the things I, I really liked. And uh, when I got here, I got to meet uh, Wade O'Brown and uh, the guys from the A-Team. And uh, that was a band that is no longer playing now in Toronto. But at that time, was, to me, it was one of the best funk bands, cover funk bands that were in the city. Um, they used to host the jam. They did it for years. So I used to go to the jam with them uh, or to play with them. And then eventually I became part of the band. You know, I learned a lot of the, a lot of the repertoire from the R&B stuff. I learned it from them. So again, you know, it was back to school. In terms of that, because uh, there was a lot of things that I didn't know, but I liked it. So it wasn't really hardship. It wasn't hard. I was just, you know, learning, 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 learning. Playing with that band, I got in touch with a legendary drummer. Actually, one of the daughters of uh, of uh, this legendary drummer, she uh, used to be a fan of the R&B band. She, she approached me and said, hey, my dad is looking for a trumpet player for his band. And I know you kind of like the jazz stuff. 
will you be interested? Like, for sure. She uh, introduced me to her father, late, uh, the great late Archie Aline. That's how, you know, he came out, you know, to a gig and, and we met. We spoke him and, uh, and the other great late uh, Doug Richardson, which was his, his, uh, his uh, partner in the band, uh, tenor player. And they came, they met me, we talked, and then we started, you know, another, another, another musical school for me. So with uh, Archie Aline and Collage. Archie Aline, one of Alexis' Canadian music mentors, was a veteran black Canadian jazz drummer who began breaking color barriers in the 1940s as he appeared in various Queen Street music clubs. He performed with internationally famous visiting musicians such as Billie Holiday, not to mention hundreds of Canadian jazz musicians. Collage, the band Alexis performed with, was his final band. Aline passed away in 2015. band that sounded like them in in town it was again it was like if i if i moved back to like 1950s right you know it was i was right in the middle of the 50s i was like oh my god this is a dream because <laughs> i was i was i've been i've been studying and practicing and you know sort of that was kind of like the uh the era that i was that i was into at that time uh, for jazz right so once i started playing with collage then again it was it was like a dream come true and Archie and Dagi were like exceptional musicians and, and you know, persons and, and uh, characters. And again, I learned so much from them, even without playing a note, right? It, it was, there was so much wisdom and experience and, you know, they were around for so long. They, they knew what music was all about. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people, let's just say in town, they don't, they, they don't, they don't, they don't get the, chance to have that kind of mentorship anymore and i consider myself extremely lucky that when i when i moved i uh, i found all those channels found me where i found those channels and i got that mentorship from from those guys because like literally nowadays i mean i could be wrong but I, I see that there's not there's not a lot of that going on right especially now but you know in the last maybe in the last 10 years yeah i don't think there's a lot of that going on in town Right. So, um, so yeah, you know, I, I was doing R&B at the same time I was doing bebop and that also helped me work on my, uh, musical, I don't know, you can call it ambiguity or, or, uh, like the, the capacity to go from style to styles because, uh, I was doing both of those literally at the same time. Like some days I will be playing R&B, some days I'll be playing 1950s bebop. And then obviously because I'm Cuban, the Cuban music found me. I didn't even have to look for it. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're here. Come. <laughs> so, yeah, I was doing that at the same time. And again, uh, the repertoire that it was being played here um, at that time for Cuba music was not why, what I was getting into in Cuba. In Cuba, we were like, in a progressive mode we were like oh, okay you know this is like this is what's happening now right this is 
you know, progressive, progressive. At least the thing I was in. I mean, I was playing with the Radio Television Orchestra, which was traditional music, but it was in a big band format, not in a small format. So when you have a small format, then you have a lot more responsibility. And then when you play in traditional music in a small format, then you have to learn very well what it is that you're doing <laughs> and your position. Again, that was a bit of a, also a learning curve for me because I had to learn a lot of traditional repertoire, which I was familiar with, but I never played. It was it was a good it was a good decade of learning curve, like steady learning curve, when I moved here from different angles. It was great because then I, I you know I, I sort of tried to develop that capacity of switching back and forth between musical styles, like very very different musical styles from bebop to R&B to traditional Cuban music. <laughs> So it was it was it was great. It was great. It was you know that was a, a good experience. And then through all all of that, you know, I managed to meet a lot of musicians. I managed to do a lot of work. I, I worked on television. I did Canadian Idol for many years. I did Canada's Walk of Fame also a few times. And you know, I got to meet some celebrities or great musicians. And um, yeah, you know, just it's it's been it's been an interesting ride for sure. Alexi's timing was great, as Toronto was experiencing a significant expansion of Latin music and culture in venues like the Cerveceria and Berlin. Then, Lula Lounge became the epicenter of that movement. As Alexis explains, Lula solidified the strong Cuban presence in Toronto's music world, but how did Cuban musicians integrate with, teach, and learn from other Latin American or Canadian-born players? Yeah, no, I, I came. I came just before before Lula Lounge opened, but the whole the whole movement was already there. I think uh, it was a one federal street or whatever they had. They they used to have like a jam there, and then they had like an arts, like painting and music, and it was like it was sort of like the pre Lula hangout at that time. And the actual place was Friday nights. Friday nights. Cerveceria was the it was the Q and night like the the regular Q and I at least the one I knew for sure and yeah I, I uh, well I I met Rufino the first time I came right the trumpet player Q and trumpet player he was here he's been here way before me so he was he was the he was the guy that was playing in that band and you know he invited me many times he's like come here hang out sitting with the band so I used to go to Cerveceria when I wasn't playing anywhere else I used to go to Cerveceria all the time and play traditional music and you know i uh it was it was interesting because i uh, there was a whole lot of repertoire traditional cuban repertoire that that i've that i heard that i knew but i never played before so i i learned a lot of the repertoire uh playing with clave congo i think it was used to be called back then but then it came to Songache. so yeah it was it was uh definitely a little bit of a school for traditional cuban music because uh, in cuba I, I never really play traditionally in like a small ensemble so the roles are different i play traditional in a big band ensemble but in small ensemble was uh different so that was that was definitely the, the movement and it became a lot bigger uh, after uh christian and um like chendi was here alberto alberto were here and then uh yeah it just started getting bigger uh the band and the audience just before Lula open or around the same time that Lula open on Friday nights at Cerveceria was you didn't even need any kind of advertisement for that place. It was so packed every single Friday night. And that was like the Cuban party. 
Like if, if there is any Cuban that was in town, uh, anybody that came on tour, anybody that just happened to play a big show and was hanging out and passed by on a Friday, that was it. Cerveceria was the spot where traditional Cuban music was happening. And then, then Lula opened and then we were like so happy because then we got two. <laughs> we're like, okay, you know, this is, this, is, this is getting better. And then eventually Lula became what it is now. Like, you know, it's became, you know, way bigger, you know, not only for audience, but I think it was for, for Latin music and world music in general, right? I mean, Zero City, I think for the most part was Cuban music, traditional Cuban music, but then, you know, Lula, Lula made it even bigger. Lula made, made like the house of world music and Latin music, not just Cuban music, but Latin music. And besides that, you know, eventually it has become such a, a place that, you know, that now you just, there's Lula records and, you know, it's like helping uh, Latin artists put, you know, music out there. So it has become something way big, way, way bigger. We're so glad and happy to have it <laughs> because without it, I don't think the community would have survived. Before Lula, there was... Uh, a club used to call Berlin. It was up in uh, Young and Eglinton area. So uh, Berlin was, it was a very dancer club, but for people that used to like, like ballroom salsa dancing. So with all the very fancy, crazy steps. So that club used to have salsa on Tuesdays, which it was very rare for, for uh, right now, you, you don't see anything like that on a Tuesday, but that was the spot. Uh, that was the spot when I got here on Tuesday. And that club, basically, it was a combination of everything. But for the most part, it was salsa. So to me, that was that was a spot where you could see a lot of Canadians or non-Cubans and Cuban musicians united in all the bands. Because basically, we're there for the music. You read your charts. And, you know, if you like the music, if you understand the music, and even if you don't understand the music, but if you like the music and you can read, as a horn player, I should say, that was on Tuesdays there, there was always bands with the, I think, the biggest integration of musicians were Canadians, Latin, Cubans, like, you know, all kinds of uh, musicians from everywhere. So I think for me, that was sort of the first, my first encounter, my first experience of playing Latin music or Cuban music with non-Cuban musicians on a regular, right? I mean, I wasn't there every Tuesday, but pretty much every time I play there, it was a combination. And then I met I met a lot of musicians, a lot of Canadian musicians that had love and passion for, for Latin music, uh, horn players and percussionists and bass players and, uh, and so on that like Latin music. And to me, that was, yeah, that was a spot where, where you sort of get everybody together and and um and that's how that's that's where I learned to you know how how to communicate in time with people that might not understand the same way that we understand the music you know how to how to explain certain things especially in the horn section you know just just uh certain types of articulations and and ways of playing uh but you know it is I think as as musicians, even though you might have grown up in the Latin community or not, you have to have an ear, right? And if you're playing a Latin gig, it's because somewhat you sort of like it or find it interesting. And when you're playing with another fellow musicians that sort of know a little better or a little more about their uh, their identity, once 
you get to mingle, especially in a horn session, you pick up the little subtle details of how to play the music. And sometimes you don't need words. You just have to, you know, listen. And once you listen, you don't need to explain. I mean, you can say, hey, this note is long, this note is short, or this is how you play it. But once it's, once it's played a few times, then being together, it's, it's the best way to, uh, for anybody to learn. One of the most fascinating moments in our interview with Alexis was when he told us about Jay Danley's role in the development of traditional Cuban music in Toronto. We interviewed Jay for the previous episode on what we call the Cuban music without Cubans face in 1980s and 1990s Toronto. He learned to play tres guitar by listening to all Cuban music recordings and founded, with other white Canadians, the Son Montuno band Claude Congo, the house band of the Cerveceria. The idea of a hippie white musician in Toronto teaching how to play traditional Cuban music to Alexis, a Cuban musician educated at the finest conservatory in the island, is mind-boggling. Jay Danley was one of those guys that, that uh, when I first came, I, uh, my mind blew. I was like, what? Who is this guy? How how is how is he so good? <laughs> right? He was he was he was great doing what he and what he did. Like you know, we're playing the tres and, and the guitar, and and you know that was to me that's that's one of the prime examples of integration of either not even Latin American but Canadian uh, musician playing traditional Cuban music the proper way. It's not there's not a matter of you know they can't or can't do it. Like I mean, if you like it and you want to do it, you can do it. And Jay, you know, Jay, uh, Jay was a, a primary example for, for uh, me. And then, you know, like that, Christian Saldivar playing guitar, playing bass, you know how to play traditional Cuban music. And, you know, he's not Cuban, but he definitely knows. Like he, he's, he studied, he, you know, he, he, uh, he learned it. And, and, you know, there's, there's no any kind of critics about him doing it. because you know, he was perfect. He did what he did what he did and and you know christian uh brought me into the band and you know and i played with sona che for years we did you know we, we recorded sham belavid is another guy that that you know likes world music and he learned how to play traditional cuban music and he does it i mean in a traditional style he knows what he should be doing right he knows what he does and you know he has his own band and um and he does like literally traditional Cuban music for certain certain period of time, right? From the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, right? Even a little bit of the 70s. He knows the style, but they're not the majority. I mean, those are those are some of the names that that sort of pop up. I'm I'm pretty sure there's a few more, but you know they're not they're not the majority of musicians from the rest of basically the Canada or Central America or South America that come into the sort of Cuban tradition or the Cuban salsa uh, music. And Luisito, Luisito was, uh, Luisito is, is, is an amazing guy. He goes, he goes anywhere. He's, we, we used to actually, uh, he used to be my roommate for years. <laughs> well, I used to be his roommate <laughs> for years. So yeah, we lived together in the same house. We would spend countless, countless amount of uh, like hours Playing, jamming, recording, eating, <laughs> drinking. Yeah, man, Luisito is, Luisito is like my brother. 
Um, I haven't seen him in a while, but yeah, we go, we go way, way, way back. And you know, that's another. He's another prime example of, of you know, like knowledgeable of music. So the integration is there. It had happened, and you know, it continues to happen. But it's more from one side to the other. I think it's just by choice because they have guys that you know have done either way. But it's definitely there. Luis Orbegoso, or Luisito, as everybody knows him in the music community, also has a fascinating background that has allowed him to experience the Cuban music scene in Toronto from a unique perspective. Luisito was born in Lima, Peru in 1971, but came to Canada when he was two years old. He landed in Montreal, where he went to school. When he graduated from high school, he wanted to study sound engineering, but he ended up moving to Toronto to study music and drumming at Humber College. He graduated from Humber in 1994. One of the reasons he chose Humber was Memo Acevedo, a professor in the music program there, who had a Latin ensemble. After Luisito completed his degree, Memo hired him to play for his band. That was his first professional opportunity as a performing musician in Toronto. After that, he's been recording and playing pretty much non-stop in Toronto. He also became a successful producer, educator, and a self-taught sound engineer. We asked Luisito about his early experiences in the Cuban music world in 1990s Toronto. Toward my, the end of my Humber years, like in 93, I met an Italian piano player, arranger, trumpet player, who became a, um, a doctor as well, I believe, uh, you know, York University, very well respected, God rest his soul, Mr. Michael Marcuzzi. I met him in, in 93, actually playing with another Cuban musician, Luis Mario Ochoa. I met those two, I mean, I consider Mike Marcuzzi to be Cuban, musically Cuban, <laughs> because of all his knowledge and all his uh, guidance in that in that culture, in that music. So, and Luis Mario Ochoa was the other in the, the other gentleman that, that I met. Other than that, I can't really think of Cuban musicians at the time. Luisito was also a regular at the Friday Cuban Nights at the Cervecería Bar. He was invited to perform often at the College Street venue where he met the first wave of Cuban musicians that started arriving in the city from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s. I'd go there, I think I'd started going there in the mid-90s, before the groups from Ache. It was Clave Congo, and I met, uh, I believe, Rufino Macedo was on the gig, the trumpet player. Actually, let me, let me backtrack a little bit, because also, in my last year at Humber, I did meet Rufino. This was 
94 or 93, I met Rufino and I also met Angel Luis, the singer. They both had just come from uh, Cienfuegos, if I'm not mistaken. So I met them and they were they started working with a group called Grupo Mora. That's that, Wilson Acevedo, that's, that's how I met these two gentlemen. We can talk about how what it represented for me musically later on, but for me, as soon as they, they arrived, Along, also, Manuel Piedra. I met Manuel Piedra back then in, in those years. As soon as they arrived, everything changed because musically there was a, an authentic interpretation of that music that a lot of us were trying to achieve secondhand. In other words, we n not a lot of us were, were able to spend a significant amount of time in Latin America and Cuba learning all these rhythms and learning the music. From there, we had to basically go and, and, and resort to records to to learn how to play it and try and imitate it. So when these guys came, Rufino, Angel Luis, you know, Manuel Piedras, and maybe there's some other people that I'm not mentioning here, but there was a sort of a, a dramatic, there was a corner that was turned basically. And, and all of a sudden, obviously, you know, Wilson Acevedo and Memo and all these guys, they, they, they had, the, the notion and, and the interpretation as well, authentic. They sounded authentic, but I was also looking at rumba, you know, as a Cuban, you know, part of Cuban music for me that I was really interested in because there was a lot of drumming involved. So as soon as Angel Luis and Rufino came, I was, wow, like I, I wanted to be around them all the time and play with them and ask them questions. And back to Cerveceria, Rufino, I think, was there when I, when I would go there in the late 90s. And then occasionally I would also play with them and I would also play with other groups in Cerveceria, you know, not, not regularly because Songache eventually had the regular gig. But I would go there, the more time passed, the more the years went by, I'd almost be there every Friday because I knew it was a sure uh, good night, you know, night of fun and... and just hanging out with everybody and playing some music and listening to some good Cuban uh, traditional music. There was another point, a turning point in the mid-90s when even more Cubans arrived. And I don't even know, I don't think these people that I remember right now, I don't think they live here anymore. Maybe Picolino is one of them. But, you know, there's other people like Ignacio and Ignacio, I think his name was P P Pinedo, not Pinedo, but Pinedo, I think. And... Um, Eddie Caraballo, Ale Alexander, other other waves of Cuban musicians that came in the mid '90s, late '90s, and all of a sudden it was like it, things just burst open, and and so many Cuban musicians were here, and it was easier for band leaders to build off of them because they had their bands, and now all of a sudden there was a higher musical level, and things were changing. So. You know, then, you know, Mayito del Monte with Mireya Escalante came, obviously Larry Duran. So it just, like I said, you know, it just, the gates opened basically. Latin scene, where the Cuban music diaspora has historically played a prominent role, 
was a direct source of inspiration for the Open City art shows, and later for Lula Lounge. Jose Ortega came from that world and tried to bring that important piece of New York to Toronto. In New York, I lived in the East Village, and near me was uh, a place called the New Yorican Poets Cafe, which is a classic place from New York. I don't know. I don't know how far back it goes. If it's the 70s, it was started by a poet, a Puerto Rican poet, and they would have um, poetry jams, and they had um, all kinds of music, rap and acting and, and theater and all this stuff. But they also had a, at least when I was there, I'm sure it changed, but they had charanga night. So they had a Thursday nights, they would have a charanga band, the Jóvenes del Barrio, and they would go in there and play. And I just loved the vibe. Or And again, there's like this uh, duality in, in the music where, where you have like, and I was always drawn to the community, I don't know, maybe more raw expression of it, as opposed to the discotheque, more flashy uh, maybe geared toward the dancers and the, the, the nightclub aspect of it. So then, so yeah, so the New York and Poets Cafe was a cool place and I would go there and just listen to the music and you'd get, you know, uh, guest musicians that were playing in New York and other bands or whatever would show up there. And it was just like this brilliant experience. And sometimes there were a few people, sometimes there was a ton of people, but it was just like this neat thing. And it was kind of like in a, maybe in an old church or anyway, it was just like an old reclaimed building. And then there was SOBs, was just like... Uh, you know, like the temple of, you know, this kind of music when it was traveling through New York. It was a small venue, maybe similar size to what, what Lula is. And, you know, I saw Oscar de Leon there and I saw, I think, El Gran Combo and I saw like a, a bunch of bands there. Uh, so that was also as far as the vibe. So it was kind of in between those two places primarily like that, that kind of um, the tightness and the sweatiness and, and the rawness of it all. And then the music is just the... Uh, it's very there, like SOBs was not big. So if you were in front of the stage, it's actually similar setup to Lula in the sense that the stage is just like two feet higher than the floor. So you're, you know, if you're watching Eddie Palmieri, you are two feet away from his shoulders and you're watching him playing there and there's no bouncer barrier. There's, you know, it's just very intimate. So you could really see the people playing and hear it and feel the music coming off the stage. So that was the kind of energy that, that we wanted to kind of get get to a boiling point. It's just that 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 New York was definitely a, a big part of that. Yeah, without a doubt. And that was kind of like the, it, it's hard to explain it to musicians because if you haven't, I mean, they know the music and they know that, but the, the experience from an audience member. So it was always kind of, in the beginning, it was kind of like, you know, the, this whole thing about showmanship and connecting with the audience. The other problem with the with the bands that, that are used to doing covers is that they, they go through the cover, they go through the song, they go through the sheets, like masterfully. But if you look at them, it's almost like nothing's happening. Like if you turn off the sound and you look at the stage, it's almost like they're, they're sometimes, not, not all the bands. And there's just like an odd, uh, and I think that comes from doing covers and doing things to an audience that just wants to hear the song the way it was made. And so then that that energy in the moment is kind of taken away. So we, we, we really wanted to push for that, a, a more, you know, improvisation or more interaction with the crowd. And, and it's always, for me, it was always like I wanted to recreate kind of those feelings that I had uh, when things just kind of take off a little bit part of the, the, foot, the blueprint for Lula, for sure. Around that same time, Luisito Beoso was also trying to connect the New York and the Toronto Latin scenes. I met Jose on a casual night 
and we started talking and we, we found that we had the same interests in terms of developing the Toronto Latin music scene. I loved going to New York and visiting, this was like early 2000s, like 2001. I, I had gone to New York for an extended period of time and I was trying to connect the two scenes, like New York and Toronto, because I had a real affinity for um, music from New York. I mean, it was a very, music, it still is. It, whatever comes out of New York has a very high level of mu music, musicality, and, you know, you have to really be a good artist or you have to know your instrument, your music, to be successful in New York. That's what I found about New York. So I wanted to bring that to Toronto. So to basically put, give the musicians here a taste of what good artistry is like and good, uh, different, because it, in New York, it's every city is different. So New York, as soon as uh, the artists from New York came, you could feel like when you go and listen to them or watch them, you could feel the, the different energy and it was super intense and super artistic and, and it would get you involved. I mean, if you if you're at all interested in what you are seeing or listening to, it would really pull you along and get you involved in what they were doing. So I talked to Jose about this and he was very interested in what hearing me out and what I had to say. He, he organized these open city jam sessions basically out of his living quarters, out of his place, once a month. And he said, let's, let's put something together and, you know, have a little jam session with all the Cuban musicians who were there at the time, including Alexis Baró, Luisito Guerra, piano player, just off the top of my head, you know, a few musicians that I can remember. We we had maybe five or, let me see, maybe, I don't know, somewhere between five and ten open city jams. And things kept getting better and better. More people would show up and, you know, we, we were gaining a good audience in, in the community. So I remember distinctly one time, it was in March, I believe, I called Jose just to talk and he goes, I have some news for you and you can't tell anybody this, but we bought a, we bought a, we bought a, a building and I'm like, what are you going to do with it? So he, he was talking about his partner, his partner bought a building with him and he said, well, one of the things I, I wanted to do was maybe transfer what we're doing in open city and like maybe we're going to probably open a restaurant in there and transfer all the stuff that we were doing with open city to that restaurant. So I'm going to keep you in, informed and keep you up to date with what's happening. And I'm like, I was scared for him because it was a big, it was a big move. And uh, yeah, that's a big commitment. And I didn't know much about the restaurant business, but it's like, Jose, I'm going to lose you because all of a sudden now you're going to be involved in the administration and all this. And, and it's like, you know, it's not going to be like before. And he's like, well, let, let's see what happens. I, I'm really excited about this idea. So so he did it. And well, Lula wasn't, it wasn't until they decided what to what to call the club. And basically Lula was, was named after the dog of the, the partner. So, Lula was born and established on Dundas Street West, where it remains. This is how Jose remembers the opening. Yeah, yeah. We actually started at Federal Street the way we normally would. 
And then we had a band, um, it was a Colombian, but they did a, a parranda, like a big parade. Through the, and we got no permits and no permission to do any of that stuff, but that was the thing. And then everybody came into Lula and then that, that was how we, we opened it up. And, uh, one of the, and the Red Lantern was from the original loft space. And that was one of the things we brought over was the big red Chinese lantern. And because a lot of people in the beginning, are, are you a Chinese restaurant? Why the Chinese lantern? And that was simply the decoration of the loft at that at the other place. So that was kind of like the the symbolic transplanting of Lula or of Open City Lula. And Lula was a dog. So I don't know if you guys know that, that Lula was uh, the name of a dog. It, it, well, it started being mine and then it became Jose's and then it became the community dog. Uh, she was just at every party. At every event, she was there and she was super friendly and super smart. And she was kind of a street dog. So, so no, no, no. I mean, she was our dog, but she kind of did her own thing. No, no. She would like, I would literally get calls from people going, she followed me on the streetcar. She followed me home. She, uh, she would go with people to wherever they were going. She would do whatever she wanted, basically. And it was that kind of spirit that uh, everybody just voted, the, the group voted on names and Lula was like, oh no, it's gotta be Lula. It just, it's gotta be her. Lula Lounge is one of the first and more prominent spaces in Toronto, run mainly by and for Latin artists and art professionals. In part two of this episode, we will discuss more in detail how the opening of Lula in 2002 expanded the venues, but also the horizons for Cuban musicians in Toronto. We'll see how Lula began to attract Cuban musicians directly from Cuba, in addition to those already here. As Jose Ortega describes it, Lula became a home base to Cubans recently arrived in the country. Also, in part two, we'll explore the importance of dance and dance instruction at Lula. We hope you enjoyed this first part. Hasta pronto! Después de Lula, ¿qué? ¿Para dónde vamos? ¿Para casa de José?